In Titus 2, the Apostle Paul is continuing his argument from Titus 1. Uh, We saw last time that verse 1 is an unfortunate. There's a chapter division there that's quite unfortunate. He says in verse 16, speaking of the false teachers, they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. Your works reveal what you really believe. Your mouth doesn't because your mouth can just be a reflector of a heart that has been deceived. Your works reveal what you really believe. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, are slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the Word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Yesterday was a, a key day on the Protestant calendar. In particular, it's October 31st, 1517, uh, that we are most beholden to because without that day, we wouldn't be here today. Um, It was All Hallows' Eve, the day before All Saints' Day, the day in which the pilgrims would pass by the relics of the church. What were the relics? The relics were the physical remains of the saints or things they had owned or things they had worn. And they would appeal to the excess merits of the saints in hopes of fulfilling and satisfying the righteous requirements of God. Now, this occurred every year, but 1517 was different for a couple of reasons. First of all, there was a monk. Uh, His name was Martin Luther, and he'd been studying the Bible. And he was beginning to draw some conclusions that were in conflict with the Roman Catholic Church. Now, he had not come to a full-blown understanding of Uh, the Reformation doctrine of justification at this point, but he was beginning to realize there were some issues in the church. The second reason, there was an artist, and he was painting a ceiling in a chapel. It wasn't just any artist, and it wasn't just any ceiling, and it wasn't just any chapel. It was Michelangelo, and he was painting the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Michelangelo did not come cheap. In fact, Pope Leo X, his... His taste in art had all but uh, bankrupted the Vatican treasury. Meanwhile, there's a a man named Albert of Brandenburg. Uh, Albert had already uh, wrongfully procured two bishop positions at too young an age, and he wants a third position uh, in all the the opulence that comes with that position. Uh, But he needs a special uh, papal dispensation to receive it. Well, Pope Leo X and Albert of Brandenburg were both businessmen. 
and they agreed on a price. The problem was Albert was more rich in land than he was in cash. But along comes, uh, comes a, a, a monk named Johann Tetzel. Tetzel felt like he could fix the problem. He devised a scheme involving the sale of indulgences. You purchase these indulgences, which is essentially the remission of sins for you, and it would lower your time in purgatory. Or, if you purchased it for someone else, you could lower their time in purgatory. And it was an unprecedented sale. It was, it was blessed by the Pope as long as half the monies went towards the building of St. Peter's Basilica. He even had some catchy jingles that went along with his campaign. A coin in the coffer rings. A soul from purgatory springs. Well, Martin Luther could be no, uh, silent no more. In All Saints Day, November the 1st, was the day the pilgrims were scheduled to pass by and these relics and um, appeal to these merits. And so the evening before, October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther went to the castle door at Wittenberg and he, and he nailed those 95 theses. He just wanted to stir a debate about this notion that you could purchase your salvation, even though he had not come to his full-blown Reformation doctrine at that point. He began to see the erroneous teaching of the church that God gives grace to those who do their best. There's many people who still believe that. God gives grace to those who do their best. That suggests that man is at worst morally neutral. And at best, man is good. But Luther, through the study of the Scriptures, began to realize man's not good. The man's heart is corrupt. It's polluted. Man's heart is guilty before God because of his sin. Self-love shapes the core of our desires. And as a result, even our best is just an expression of self-love. Those were the conclusions that Luther was coming to. And he began to see that if we're going to have a right standing with God, it's because we have a perfect righteousness that we cannot work in ourselves. It's a perfect righteousness. We need an alien righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. And if we're going to receive that righteousness, and if that righteousness is going to be imputed to us, it will be received by faith. This became a key Reformation insight. But another Reformation insight is that when you are justified, justification does not stand alone. It has a partner. And that partner is our progressive sanctification. That is, those who are truly justified will begin to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ. And one of the key fruits of that progressive sanctification is an increasing love for the church. An increasing love for the brethren. In fact, you could say that our love for the church is the proof of our justification. 
And our love for the church is also a means of grace for our sanctification. What's remarkable is that's what we see in our passage today. I love the way that fits in with uh, Reformation weekend. We saw in chapter 2, verse 1 last time, that Paul has called Timothy to teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, it's at this point that you think that Paul's going to lay out this deep exposition on sound doctrine, the deep truths of the faith. But that's not what he does. Instead, he gives us an exposition on sound duty. You see, sound doctrine and Christian duty are inseparable. They travel together. There's no separation between sound doctrine and sound duty. If your duty isn't there, your doctrine is off. Okay? And the fundamental duty for the Christian, in light of our salvation, Paul will tell you, is to adorn the gospel. That is the fundamental duty for the Christian. In light of your salvation, in other words, you can't add to your salvation. There's nothing you can do religiously to improve your favor with God. If you have favor with God, it's because you are in Jesus Christ, the favored one. Okay? But in light of that, in light of that perfect righteousness that we have in Jesus Christ, which is what the Reformers taught us, in light of that, adorn that gospel. That is the mandate of the church. And as we're going to see today, it's a corporate endeavor. It's a corporate endeavor. It's impossible to adorn the gospel with just a Bible and a cup of coffee. It requires a body. And he's going to mention six categories of people today. And whoever you are today, you are in Titus 2. Okay, now the first thing we're going to see here, he calls, he speaks to the older men. And he says essentially to the older men, adorn the gospel. Look with me in verse 2. So he has told Timothy, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Now, why would he address the older men first? Now, who are the older men? Uh, well, the older men, uh, this could be a little scary, uh, but it's very likely the older men are men whose children have grown up and have moved out of the house. Okay? <laughs> Those are the older men. Now, why would he address the older men first? Because the older men set the tone for the local church. It's that simple. As the older men go, so goes the church. There's no exception. If you see a church that's filled with drama, you see a church that's filled with division and, and all kinds of turmoil, you, you can point the finger back at the older men. Okay, when you see a church that's thriving, when you when you see a church that's growing and and being conformed corporately to the image of Christ, you can point the finger back at the older men. There's a spiritual leadership that's very present and real 
with the older men. So he speaks, first of all, to the older men. And he says, the older men are to be sober-minded, literally temperate, or uh, a general moderation in things. Now keep in mind, verse 1 frames the entire uh, passage. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded. In other words, what does it mean to be sober-minded? It's, it's a mind, okay, um, that has been developed by sound doctrine. Okay, it's a mind that has been sobered to ultimate things by sound doctrine. Uh, This older man is not just frivolous. Okay, Uh, he he's he's a serious man. It doesn't mean he doesn't have a sense of humor. It doesn't mean he can't joke around. That's not the issue. But he is sobered by ultimate things, eternal things, because the sound word has sobered him. In fact, it says he is to be dignified, worthy of respect, literally. And this reminds us the importance of the community's regard for the older men and the role that older men have in others' lives in the church. He is to be self-controlled. Now, this has already been applied in Titus 1.8 to the elders. And it's really the key idea because it's found throughout this passage. In fact, it's found in the passage we'll look at next week as well, where it says the grace of God has appeared instructing us in self-control. What is self-control? It's self-mastery because one has been mastered by the king. That's what self-control is. The older men's lives are marked by self-control in their temper and, and in their tongue in their thoughts, and in their leadership in the church. They are to be as well sound in faith. That word sound is the same word that's found in verse 1, sound doctrine. And literally the word means um, in the sense of healthy or hygienic. It's where we get the word hygiene. And so his doctrine, sound doctrine, verse 1, informs his faith. His faith is informed by the Word of God and the great doctrines in the Word of God. In other words, he has moved past what he was taught as a child. He has progressed, he has matured in his faith, not because of his emotions and what feels right to him, but because his faith is informed and grounded by the Word of God. And notice as well, he is to be sound in love. He's sound in faith, sound in love. Our faith produces love, and our love proves our faith. Our faith produces love, and our love proves our faith. So how do we know if a man has faith in God through His Son, Jesus Christ, it goes horizontal. Okay? Uh, It always goes public. And this love here is this unswerving commitment to the redemptive good to the broader church community. This isn't self-love, where it's about my traditions and my preferences. It's love for 
the greater community. He is sound in love. This is a man who is sound in doctrine. He's sound in faith. He's sound in love. And notice, in steadfastness. He is in, he's not inconsistent. He's faithful. He, he persists in the treasuring of Christ, come what may. He has stamina in the pursuit of ultimate things. That's the older men. That's how the older men adorned the gospel of God. And again, it's these older men that set the tone. One of the reasons that this transition here was so seamless and flawless is because of our older men. I can't tell you how grateful I am to God for our older men. If the older men had resisted this, this wouldn't have happened. But the older men bought in at Fisherville. Why? They're sound in faith and they're sound in love. I just want to commend the older men who were working on this stage for months on end. You come in here on any day of the week and they were in here. Somebody was in here. Secondly, we see Paul address the older women. The older men are to adorn the gospel, but so are the older women. Notice in in verse 3, older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, are slaves to much wine. Now, this reminds us that our walks are not an individual affair. Because he, they go on and says, they are to teach what is good and so train the young women. The assumption is the older women are training the younger women. They actually know each other. Now, it's implied with the older men. It's implied certainly with the older men and the younger men, but it's clearly stated here that the older women have a responsibility. Okay, now who are the older women? Forty and above, just kidding. The older women, based on 1 Timothy 5 verse 9, are likely 60 and older, or they are women whose children have grown older and have moved out of the house. And now they have this extra discretionary time, okay, to invest in pursuits outside of their families, okay? And so we see here these older women have a responsibility. And three areas are singled out here. Notice in verse 3, they are to be reverent in behavior. Now the word reverent, this is the only place it's found in the entire New Testament. And it literally means temple fitting. It's behavior that befits someone in the temple. It's appropriate behavior in the temple. It's someone who allows the presence of God, the covenantal presence of God, to inform her life. It informs her behavior. It informs even the way she speaks. Notice, she's not a slanderer. Now, it seems here that uh, a slanderer and slaves to much wine go hand in hand. Evidently, that was an issue in Crete. But these women would, would come under the influence of wine, and then it would loosen the lips. Um, but 
What we see ultimately here is the same call to self-control. This woman is a moderate woman, and it is evidenced by the fact that she does not speak words of slander, which is the same word that we have for the devil. It is devil-like to slander. You are stealing someone's reputation when you slander. Uh, What is slander? It is discussing detrimental information about someone that may be true or not true with someone who's not part of the problem or part of the solution. That's what slander is. But this woman ultimately is a woman of self-control and moderation. Thirdly, she teaches what is good. They are to teach what is good. If you are an older woman today, you're not off the hook here. You have a responsibility to teach what is good to a younger generation. Now, that is going to look differently based on your own giftings and talents, but you have a responsibility to give your life away. If you want to flourish in your older age, this is what you do. If you want to be depressed and lonely, okay, and have feelings of uselessness in your older years, ignore what Paul is saying here. He's telling you how to flourish. When the Bible commands us to do something, it's for our good. Yes, it's for God's glory. This is for God's glory, but it's for our good. I love what, and I'm going to embarrass you here, but I love to see Marge blush. Um, Marge will take, has begun taking my daughter, Ella, once a month, and they will go visit someone and bring them a meal, cook them a meal. It doesn't take uh, you reading a systematic theology book to do. Just identify someone younger in the audience and, and invest in them. Teach what is good. In fact, he gives us specifics here as to what this will look like with the younger women. And again, you can't disconnect these things. Uh, we see here the teaching ministry of the older women corresponds to how the younger women, and this brings us to the third point, will adorn the gospel. Look with me in verse 4. Teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands. Okay? So they're to train them in in the love of their husbands and children to be self-controlled, teach them to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands that the Word of God may not be reviled. And this is the only place where women are, um, you could say, encouraged to love their husbands. It's the only place. Uh, this tells us this isn't as so much the love that a woman falls into. It's the love a woman is trained into. This kind of love that Paul is speaking of requires training. It requires discipleship. The reason I would say that is he says, train them how to love their husbands and their children. And even a pagan woman knows how to love her child in one sense. Okay, this kind of God-given maternal love by virtue of the fact that we are the image of God. This is a specific kind of love, okay? 
It's the kind of love that with the goal to cultivate godly character in your husband and in your children. In other words, they're to be taught that a young woman's highest goal in life isn't to be happy. That's not our right. The highest goal in life is to glorify and honor to God and honor God by loving their families for their spiritual good. Okay? And women need to be trained in that because it's not natural. Paul is saying here that commitment to the family is the highest priority of a young woman, a young wife, a mom. And commitment to her husband even precedes commitment to her child. That's the grammatical construction there. Train the young woman, the young women, to love their husbands and children. Why? The husband needs that, but your children need that. A child needs desperate. It's part of his or her DNA. A child needs desperately to see his or her mom love their dad. Now, it's true of dads too, but this is an, that's another sermon for another day. Here he's addressing women. I'm not just picking on the women. Paul is just addressing women here. Children need their moms to put their dads before them. Okay? They need to see what godly love looks like by watching their moms love their sometimes undeserving dads. Oftentimes undeserving dads. Okay, all the time, undeserving dads. And she said, he goes on and says, and to teach them to be self-controlled. Now that's interesting because he's already brought that up in chapter 1 for the elders. He's already brought that up for the, the older men. It was implied with the, the older women who are not to be slanderers and not given too much wine. And here they're to be taught to be self-controlled. Self-mastery, discipline, moderation. Because one has been mastered by the king, one who has been captured by the gospel, the sound doctrine that he's referring to in verse 1. Teach them to be pure. Uh, This is a woman who is chaste. She's not an adulterer. She's not a flirt. She recognizes the price that was paid for her redemption. And it informs her purity. It informs her chastity. Teaching them to be working at home. Now, I don't believe this is a prohibition uh, to working outside the home. Proverbs 31 indicates that a, that a woman can be industrious outside the home. But Paul is ranking the wife's obligations here. That's very clear. To care for her family over her personal ambitions outside that realm. Now, I know since the feminist movement, that, that, those are charged words. But if you've noticed, since the feminist movement, there's been more divorce. Okay? Think about a woman who's committed to these realities. 
So woman is taught to put her home first. Teach them to be kind. Now in the context, kindness here is in, in regard to her husband and her children. The word there is agathos. It clearly means teach them to be good, useful for a purpose. And this is in reference to her family. Teach them to be submissive to her husband. Now that is a charged word as well, submission. Um, This does not mean inferiority. Or that means Jesus is inferior to the Father because He submits to the Father. It means the Spirit is inferior to to the Father and and the Son because He submits to the Father and the Son. So clearly, submission does not mean inferiority. Uh, I heard one uh, teacher say submission is to duck so God can hit your husband. Um, There's some truth to that. Um, It's interesting this word, hupotasso, is used in Ephesians 1.22, where Paul says that in the resurrection of Jesus, all things have been brought in submission underneath the feet of Jesus. You see... One of the evidences that things have been brought in submission to Jesus is that now you have godly women who submit to their husbands. You see, in Genesis 3.16, it is said that after the fall, one of the fruits of the fall is that the man will rule over his wife and her desire will be for him. Now, what does that mean? That means a man is going to rule his wife you know, let's just say here in a in an unbelieving sense, an unbelieving man who's not been redeemed, he will rule over his wife in one of two ways. He will control her either by being a tyrant, all right, heavy-handed, abusive, or spiritually passive, not being present spiritually for her. And that has a ruling effect on her, a devastating effect on her. As well, it says, and her desire will be for him. That's not intimate desire. That's desire to assert his role as the leader of the home. And Paul says, one of the evidences the gospel's taken root, one of the evidences that Christ has been raised and all things have been brought underneath his feet is now gospel women submit to their husbands as unto the Lord. In fact, it means to arrange your, your gifts, your talents, your life under the supreme purpose of supporting your husband. This woman's personal happiness isn't ultimate. It's derivative of obeying God. And note the reason. It's very clear there that the Word of God may not be reviled. That's very interesting. Woman that refuses to do this is reviling the word of God. Would not want to stand before God in that day and have that laid upon me. That the word of God may not be reviled. In other words, a woman who does not love her husband and her children in this way is bearing false witness against Jesus. He's not sufficient. His cross, His resurrection from the grave, His ascension to the right hand of the Father is not sufficient to fix this thing. 
He says, you submit so the word of God will not be reviled. This is what's ultimate. What's that message to us? It's a message not just to women. It's a message to men. It's not about us. It's not about us. What happens in your home um, has implications for the progress of the gospel. That's what Paul is saying. Conversely, notice, he calls the younger women or younger men to account. Younger men are to adorn the gospel as well. Notice in verse 6, likewise urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Who are the younger men? Well, again, it's likely the men who still have children at home, but it would also refer to all younger men, just like younger women would refer uh, to all younger women with the assumption that the norm is that a woman will be married and have children. Notice the only thing it says about younger men here, be self-controlled. Now, I, I don't think that's a coincidence. I, I, I think that it's the one thing Paul's going after for the younger men, self-mastery. Self-mastery in your temper. By the way, if you have that self-mastery, it's a lot easier for your wife to submit to you. It's a lot easier for your wife to love you in this way that we see in this passage. So the men aren't off the hook here. Self-mastery in your tongue, your ambition, your bodily appetites, chastity before marriage, and fidelity in marriage. It's a man that's self-controlled. And as I've brought up before, he's self-controlled when he's watching, uh, when, he's, when he's on the Internet, when he has his computer there. No one's watching. He's self-controlled. Why? He is. This is self-mastery. Because he's been mastered by another. He's been mastered by the gospel. The issue of self-control is found with all these different groups in the church. Isn't that interesting? It's just, it really, I think it is the main point. There's a couple of thoughts here I want to consider. That means self-control is possible. Why would Paul be interested in self-control for the saints in the church if self-control is not possible? In fact, it's the fruit of the Spirit. Self-control is the fruit of the Spirit. Secondly, um, when he tells them, he urges them, he's telling Paul, remember he tells Timothy to uh, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Who, or he's telling Titus that. Who is Titus? He's the one who's bringing the Word of God to bear. Uh, th- this reminds us that that preaching and teaching is non-negotiable. It, it is crucial, and, and you can get angry at me at this, but it's, it's a fact, of, it's, just, it's from the Word of God. It is beyond me why ch- uh, parents don't have their children in church as the norm of life. It's beyond me that you think that church is just extra credit for the spiritually ambitious. Paul is linking teaching and preaching here with the the young man's self-control. One of the real issues in our culture is the lack of self-control with young men. And Paul is linking preaching and teaching in the local church, discipleship in the local church, with self-control. That tells me if a young man is not being raised and immersed in body life, he's done. He's done. He's mincemeat. 
the, the pastor has a responsibility to urge these young men because preaching and teaching is a means of grace to these men. So instead of fitting church around your schedule, fit your schedule around the church. That's what Paul would tell us today. Thirdly, this must be accompanied by a consistent example, and that brings us to the call to adorn the gospel as a spiritual leader. Look with me in verse 7. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Now he's writing to Timothy or Titus there. And in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. We are imitative by nature. We are. We need perpetual uh, visions of gospel-centeredness in the body to raise the bar in our lives. Last week I was in New Jersey ministering to a men's conference from a church in Queens. And their presence raised the bar in my life. I just want to tell you, there were 63 men in this conference from one church, from 24 countries. 24 countries. It convicted me that I only know one language, (laughs) but there was much more convicting than that. This church just reflects the community in Queens. But what I saw there were, were men who, who, who love each other and, and, and need each other to persevere in the faith. Men from every tribe and tongue. Men who have nothing in common with each other but Jesus. And he's enough. And so we, are, uh, we follow models, okay? That's the way God designed us. We image God, and that image plays a role in impacting others. But modeling is not sufficient. You also need teaching. You need something to explain those actions. Notice he says, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech. Teaching is crucial. And this teaching is to have three characteristics. Notice, integrity. In your teaching, show integrity. Literally, the word there is uncorruptiveness. Your teaching is to be uncorruptive. It's to be purity in doctrine. Secondly, dignity. Your teaching is to be characterized by dignity. That is, you're esteeming in your teaching what God esteems in His Word. A word-centeredness in your teaching. And thirdly, sound speech. That word sound, again, goes back to verse 1. Sound doctrine corresponds to sound speech and vice versa. Uh, The word speech there is logos, where we get the word word, sound word, sound speech. And note the reason, verse 8, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. That's the second time Paul has made clear that body life plays a role in gospel witness. We saw it in verse 5, so that the Word of God may not be reviled. And we see it here, 
so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And remarkably, in Paul's view, slaves have the same calling. Look with me in verses 9 and 10. Even slaves are called to adorn the gospel of God. They have the same status, in Paul's view, to be instruments of the gospel. Look with me in verse 9. Bondservants or slaves are to be submissive to their own masters. In everything, they're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now, I've addressed the fact that the New Testament does not endorse slavery. Okay, I, I addressed that. I've done that twice at least in our study in Colossians. But if you want to uh, listen to that message where I go into it more extensively, March 15th of this year on, the, on our website, you can find that sermon. I deal with that much more extensively. So I will not rehash those points. But suffice to say, Paul isn't dealing here with the legitimacy of slavery. He's simply saying there's something eternally more important than your present circumstances. And that's why I love this. That's why I love this text for us. Paul is writing to a church on how to glorify God in the existing fallen structures in this fallen world. And here's the point, okay? Paul's word to the slave reminds us, you can, as a Christian, indeed, you must live for God's name no matter how difficult your present relationships are. You can, indeed, you must live for God's name no matter how difficult your present relationships are. So here's the worst possible case scenario for the image of God. Someone created as the image of God, he or she is serving as a slave. And Paul says you can glorify God in that situation. It's the worst case scenario. It's the greater to the lesser. And notice he says, he says, submissive in everything. That sounds pretty comprehensive. Submissive in everything, well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, that is stealing, showing all good faith. No doubt the slave master isn't personally worthy. Okay, he's not personally worthy. She's not personally worthy. And he says, slaves, you can honor God. Now, you can apply this by extension to every difficult relationship you can think. Marriage, uh, a child who has an abusive parent, God forbid, uh, a boss who's a tyrant, a football coach. All of them are tyrants. And he says you can honor God. And note the motive again. So that in everything, they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. That word adorn is where we get the word cosmetics. Even in the most egregious of circumstances, you can make the doctrine of God look good. You can substantiate by your circumstances that Jesus indeed is risen. 
Look at my circumstances. In fact, the irony here, the more difficult your circumstances are, the more uh, opportunity you have to glorify God. Someone looks at your situation, they go, man, how do you live? How do you, how do you survive in that situation? And when they recognize it's the grace of God, it's the gospel of God who's energizing this, it's animating. You know what it does? It adorns that gospel. That's why I love that passage about slaves. What this text shows us today is the responsibility that each Christian has to participate in the church community. Okay? Now, lest I sound like I've arrived on this, I've told you this before. Uh, I needed this passage in the early 2000s. Because I treated church like it was important but not crucial. And I dried up like a raisin as a result. And I had ways to justify it. Well, I'm working on my PhD. Heather's on the road and I've got the children. So I'd go to church, but uh, you forget using my gifts in the church. That's too timely. It's, it's too costly. But this is Paul's inspired plan. The Titus 2 plan on how to make the gospel of grace swell in the body and so adorn the gospel of grace. That's what we're about. And there is an intimate relationship between our adorning the gospel of grace and our flourishing as the image of God. And gratefully, one of the one of the other means we have to adorn the gospel of grace is to celebrate the table together. And that's what we want to do today. We are a people whose highest goal in life is not personal happiness, it's to adorn the gospel. And one of the means God has given us to adorn this gospel is to celebrate what Jesus has done for us by dying the death we deserve and being raised from the grave for our pardon. If you're... Um, a visitor with us today. 